What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Wise Guys Hideaway. I'm your host, Ian Barr. Uh, I know you guys were all expecting me to be doing part two of the Tommy Lucchese with my boy, James Ramirez. However, he's got some family things he's got to deal with, and that's why we, you know, didn't get to it the next day, and it's, you know, been a little bit since you heard from me. But, so I'm going to dive into a, a different gangster today, and me and James will pick up where we left off uh, as soon as he's done, you know, taking care of his family and all that, and a big shout out to him, and I hope everything, you know, goes smoothly. Before we get started today, I'm going to give a couple quick shout-outs here to Arthur Clothing Apparel, uh, my boy Gunnar Lindblom and his YouTube series, My Thing, Scott M. Bernstein and his original Gangsters podcast, as, long, as well as uh, the Motor City Mafia book that he did about the Detroit mob, Larry Mazza and his book, The Life, and, you know, just all the guys in Facebooks, my family and friends, you know, I mean, big shout-out to all you guys, um, you know, I'm out here doing it. So today, um, a couple days late and a dollar short as always, but we're going to be talking about Joseph Crazy Joey Gallo. Now, uh, Joe Gallo was both born and died on April 7th, which was a few days ago. It was actually the anniversary of his assassination. Uh, and I got the episode wrote up that day and just didn't manage to get it recorded. Been, you know, doing a remodel for, um, you know, a family friend and just been super busy, uh, despite the fact that, you know, it is a quarantine. Now, he was born April 7, 1929 in Red Hook, Brooklyn. He was, you know, one of the three sons to Umberto Gallo, who was a low-level, you know, th you know, thug, if you will, sort of a bootlegger and an extortionist. And uh, his brothers, Larry and Albert, are Kid Blast, as Albert would be known later, uh, would become wise guys as well as Joe. But Joey would definitely be the most prolific of all of them. Uh, his nicknames included Crazy Joe Gallo because, I mean, people really did think he was mentally insane. He actually was even declared schizophrenic at one point, as well as uh, Joe the Blonde or Joey the Blonde due to, I mean, you know, obviously speaks <laughs> speaks it all. Now, um, Joey, Joey Gallo was a little bit different. You know, he had a very artistic uh, love, if you will. He enjoyed writing poetry and he loved film and uh, he, he befriended, befriended many musicians and celebrities throughout his rise to power, it was actually a, a big, kind of like a key factor for him, was sort of brushing, brushing shoulders with these uh, well-known individuals, and uh, actually in the 1949 uh, portrayal of a gangster, and uh, Richard, uh, Richard Widmark's uh, gangster character, uh, Tommy Udo, was who actually inspired Crazy Joe to, you know, sort of have the swagger, if you will, that he did, the the crazy eyes, the making everybody think he was mentally insane, you know, and this, that, whatever. And in 1950, he would be arrested and he would be placed in Kings County Hospital Center where they did diagnose him as a schizophrenic. Uh, Joey Gallo was married twice. His first wife he was married to was Jeffy Lee Boyd. And uh, they were on again, off again from about 1960 to 1971. They ended up having one daughter whose name also is Joey, but J-O-I-E. Uh, until in March of 1972, exactly three weeks before his death, and shortly after his divorce from uh, Jeffy, he marries a 29-year-old actress by the name of Sina Isera, and uh, it becomes a stepfather to uh, to her child. Now, Joey Gallo began his life always being a crook. I mean, he was a young, he was running the streets of Brooklyn as a kid, swiping from cart vendors and doing whatever he could do to get ahead. I mean, his father encouraged him and his brothers to do it, really. You know, and uh, so eventually when he would take the leap into attempting to become a member of organized crime, he would start off as an, uh, an enforcer and eventually a hitman for one of the original sitting commission bosses, Joe Profaci. Now, Joey Gallo's headquarters was an apartment on President Street where allegedly he kept a cub lion in the basement by the name of Cleo 
And when people would, you know, owe money or, you know, have various problems that needed to be solved, you know, via violence, uh, Gallo would threaten them with the lion and in some cases even feed them to the lion. So Joey Gallo, I mean, he really, he really made a name for himself in the streets. People knew that he was not to be fucked with. I mean, he was, you could see it in his eyes that he had this uneasy, you know, sort of energy about him. And he was always, always trying to prove himself, always trying to, you know, take the next step. And he always wanted to be the boss. He never, he never wanted to fall into the line of command as some schmuck. I mean, he wanted to be who the guy was. He wanted to be Joe Profaci. He wanted to be Joe Colombo. He wanted to be, you know, he wanted to be Lucky Luciano. That's what he wanted. Now, a rather unknown fact about Gallo throughout this time was that he secretly owned a, a you know, a handful of Manhattan nightclubs and then, uh, you know, half dozen or so sweatshops in the garment district where he was making a killing on um, counterfeit dresses as well as, you know, he would hijack loads of actual, you know, name brand clothing to uh, sell as well. He had a real, uh, he had a real pension for uh, fashion from everything that I, I've read up on him, even though he himself always kind of looked like a crazed, you know, lunatic, but he enjoyed nice suits. He enjoyed nice dresses. Like I said, he really enjoyed the nightlife. Uh, one of his biggest claims to fame, him and his brothers, as well as uh, another individual by the name of Carmine Persico or Carmine the Snake Persico, is that on October 25th, 1957, uh, Gallo, his brother, uh, Kid Albert, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, his brother, Kid Blast, you know, Albert, Kid Blast, Gallo, Larry Gallo, and then another individual, Carmine Persico, uh, gunned Albert Anastasia down in the Park Sheridan Hotel's barbershop, um, now, in Midtown, that is, and now that, that is one of the most, uh, pivotal hits in organized crime history, I mean, uh, between Genovese and, uh, the underboss of the Anastasia family at the time, Carlo Gambino, teaming up, plotting the hit, and, you know, I mean, it really changed everything, you guys, I mean, Carlo Gambino took over the family, and, I mean, he made it a mega, mega powerhouse of a family, but it would have never been possible had it not been for Gallo and uh, his fellow shooters, who were nicknamed the Barbershop Quintet, actually, uh, is what the, the the papers would nickname them. <clears throat> now, following the years after that, him and his brothers were summoned to Washington, D.C. to testify before the McLennan Committee of the Senate uh, that was sort of overseen by, you know, Robert Kennedy, who had a real pension uh, for organized crime. And he, he, I mean, he just pretty much made a, a spectacle of himself. He wore dark sunglasses the whole time and smoked cigarettes and just sort of kept this crazed demeanor, you know, just furthering the whole, you know, crazy Joey Gallo stick. Now, Joe Gallo... Never, ever, ever wanted to answer to anybody, nor did he give a fuck. And on February 27, 1961, Gallo kidnaps four of Profaci's top men. You know, the, the, the boss of the family that he works for, eventually he says, you know what, fuck him. I, you know, I want to be the top boy. And he kidnaps his underboss, uh, Magliaco. He kidnaps Frank Profaci, who is the brother of Joe Profaci. He kidnaps a, a capo regime by the name of Sal Mushiasi, or Musacia, <coughs> my bad. And then he kidnaps a soldier by the name by the name of uh, John Scamoni, and uh, he held him for ransom for a lengthy amount of time, and well, I mean he's trying to get a hundred grand, and and I mean it never quite played out for him, and eventually Gallo and Profaci reached what was supposed to be a, a peace treaty. He would he would release the hostages, and exchange nothing would be done to him. However, once Profaci got <coughs> excuse me, once Profaci got the members of his family back, 
he instantly, you know, was start began plotting revenge. And then on August 20th, 1961, uh, Profaci ordered the murders of Larry Gallo and Joseph Joe Gioli. Gioli, uh, Gioli was a, you know, Joe, uh, Joe Gallo crew member. Now, Gioli was gunned down uh, during sort of a ruse where he was invited to go fishing. And once, you know, they had him, you know, in the car, that's all she freaking wrote. Now, Larry Gallo, on the other hand, he survives the attempt on his life. And this is where it gets interesting because Larry Gallo's attempted murder is actually portrayed in Godfather 2. When they attempt to strangle, um, I forget who it is in the movie, but in real life, you know, it's Larry Gallo at a East Flat, uh, <clears throat> at the Sahara Club, excuse me. And the attempted assassins were none other than what they thought were, you know, allies, Carmine Persico, which afterwards that's where uh, Larry Gallo sort of crowns Persico the snake. And then another individual by the name of Sally D'Ambriusio. And, you know, Persico lowered Gallo in. They attempt to strangle him. And then uh, just, you know, one of those beat cops at the time manages to walk in and catch the two mid-act. The two, the two you know, assailants, they flee. They're later caught, you know. And Larry is sort of taken in for questioning. And, he's, and like, there's a picture of him, actually where you can see where the rope or the piano wire or whatever it may have been was still, you know, you could see the mark on his neck and he's in the back of a police car or it might not be a police car. It might just be a regular car, but I do believe it's a police car. And he's kind of just gazing out. He's like gazing out the window and just like the gaze in his eyes is the gaze of a of man who knows that he should be dead and on his way to be buried right now. And if it wasn't for somebody walking in during, you know, the whole ordeal, he most definitely would have been. It's a, it's actually a very sort of eerie photo when you look at it for me anyway. Now, during this whole feud between, you know, Gallo and Perfacci, I mean, there's just endless murders, you guys. I mean, nine confirmed murders and then three disappearances, you know, and uh, Persico ends up indicted for attempted murder of Larry Gallo. Larry refuses to testify, making uh, Persico, making them, you know, have to let him walk. And, I mean, that's just the code of our merit. You guys, like, you know, you don't snitch, you handle it yourself. And then on November 1961, Joey Gallo is indicted for conspiracy and extortion. <clears throat> now, while he's away, he sort of puts his brothers in charge of running the crew because on December 21st, 1961, he's sentenced to 7 to 14 years in prison. Uh, he served time in multiple institutions, including Greenhaven, Attica, and Auburn, which were all very, very tough prisons at the time. Now, Around 1962, Larry and Albert and five other members of the Gallo crew saved six kids and a, a single mother from burning to death in an apartment building that was on fire, and they sort of became heroes amongst the press. Now, while all this is going on, Joey Gallo's in the joint, and he befriends a future, uh, I guess, kingpin, if you will, a future, another future street legend, uh, a, a black individual by the name of uh, Leroy Nicky Barnes. Now, you may have heard of Nicky Barnes from the American Gangster movie uh, that was about Frank Lucas, and uh, it's the exact same one. Gallo, Gallo didn't hold the other, like some of the more prejudicial views that some of his underlings or even some of his you know uh, equals or the bosses or whoever held. Gallo began working very closely with uh, black gangsters. He thought that, you know, the the mafia and then, you know, the gangs from, you know, Harlem and Brooklyn and the Bronx and all that, they could unite because, I mean, drugs, drugs were on the rise, you guys. And, like, Gallo was sort of a visionary knowing that the future is going to lie with everybody coming together for real. You know, kind of like what Luciano wanted. However, 
some of the old prejudices of, you know, Italians, Irish, Jewish, you know, individuals, they always sort of look down on, on the black gangsters, uh, is, I mean, as ignorant as it is because everybody's a criminal in this life that I'm talking about, but Joey Gallo is one, one of the few that never did. And so he begins working with a lot of, uh, black gangsters and, uh, I mean, the powers that be just really aren't a big fan, you know what I mean? But they, that wasn't, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, on August 29th, 1964, Gatlin ends up suing the Department of Corrections, stating that guards were using cruel and unusual punishment on him because he was beaten after it was found out that he got a haircut from a, a, a black inmate. And I feel like that was always ordered by, you know, the powers that be to send a message to Gallo to stop working with the, uh, to stop working with the black, uh, gangsters in prison. But I mean, he, Gallo never listened. I mean, he was crazy Joe. He didn't give a fuck. <clears throat> now it wouldn't be until Auburn, uh, when Gallo was serving time in the, uh, correctional facility of Auburn that he would take up painting and reading. I mean, avidly, you guys, he read Machiavelli. He read any philosopher there was. He, he went down the rabbit hole on books. He loved to read. He loved to write poetry. And he took up painting, and he actually he wasn't too bad at it. Now, in May of 1968, Larry Gallo ends up dying of cancer. And so this sort of puts a, a fly in the ointment, if you will, with the Gallo crew because Joey's still in prison, and now Larry's dead. Albert's still around, but the crew is definitely taking a hit from all the all the wars they go through. Like, pretty much the, Joe, the, the Gallo crew always seem to be at war, you know, with some other faction of the Profaci family, uh, which would eventually become the Colombo family. We'll get to that. <clears throat> what Actually, we're going to get to that right now. On June 7th, 1962, uh, Joe Profaci dies of cancer, and Magliaco takes over. Now, Larry Gallo and all them are still around at this point, <clears throat> you know, but it's, uh, I don't know, it's just a very tempestuous time for these guys, and they, I mean, they would just go after whoever they wanted. They were, they were pretty much like loose, loose cannons, all of them, really. You know, May 19th, 1963, a Gallo hit team uh, attempts to kill Carmine Persico for, you know, what he had attempted to do to Larry, but he manages to live. And, the, I mean, the war is just going on and on and on. And eventually it would tr take uh, Raymond Patricia of the Patricia crime family out there in Boston, as well as, uh, you know, a few others to negotiate peace. Now... Eventually, the commission forces Magliaco to resign in 1963 because him and, uh, and several others attempt to assassinate Carlo Gambino. They plot they plot a hit on Carlo Gambino, and the hitman that they hire is a well-known Profaci family captain, Joe Colombo. <clears throat> when Joe Colombo's given the hit, instead of instead of fulfilling the hit like a good hitman usually does, he decides he's going to get in touch with Carlo and the other members of the commission, and so they, they strip Magliaco, you know, of all his power, and due to Joe Colombo's, um, I wouldn't call it loyalty, because loyalty to your family would be you did that hit, but due to Joe Colombo's cunning ability to, you know, sift through the organized crime world, Joe, you know, Joe Colombo is made boss. Now, shortly after Joe Colombo is made boss, Joey Gallo is released. He's released on April 11th, 1971, and that same year in 1971, a movie by the name gang that couldn't shoot straight, uh, hits theaters and hits the scene. And it's sort of like a, a depiction of the Gallo crew. You know, I mean, just, just how wild and loose hinged they were and how there was bullet zinging all over the place. Now, Joey Gallo would, <clears throat> once he got out, would still continue to be a loose cannon and sort of a liability. 
and he would prove just how much of a liability when on June 28, 1971, during the second annual Italian-American uh, festival in Columbus Circle, a individual by the name of Jerome A. Johnson uh, shot and killed Joe Colombo uh, shortly before he was going to make a speech. Now, Jerome A. Johnson had done time with Gallo, and Gallo had sort of enlisted his help to throw off the trail of who who it might be that did the hit. Uh, Jerome posed as a cameraman, got close enough to Gallo, fired a few shots in him, and then he himself was gunned down almost immediately. I mean, there were there was more guns in that place than a, than a police precinct. Now, <clears throat> all the powers that be in the commission suspected Joey Gallo of doing this hit. You know, Columbo supporters suspected Gallo of doing this hit. Pretty much there wasn't anybody who didn't think that Joe Gallo uh, at, least, at least was partially responsible for the assassination of Joey Columbo. And taking out a boss is just <clears throat> not acceptable, you guys. And so on April 7th, 1972, uh, a full, full 43 years from the day he was born, because he was born and died on the same exact day, which I've always found very fascinating. I've always thought it was kind of cool, actually. You sort of come full circle. And uh, I almost wouldn't mind it. Like, I mean, we all we all got a life and we all owe a death. And, I mean, when mine comes, it would actually be kind of cool to just come full circle and be a be a solid year age, you know, not 43 years, whatever months, whatever. I don't know. I, I'm rambling. But nonetheless, at around 4.30 a.m. in a, uh, Umberto's Clam House in Little Italy, uh, he's sitting there with his family and, and a few, you know, associates and a bodyguard celebrating his birthday. Now, several gunmen come bursting through the door, and they begin just zinging rounds at Gallo. Gallo flips the table up to protect his family, and during that, he eats a couple rounds, and they shoot back, <clears throat> Gallo and his uh, bodyguard, they shoot back, but they don't hit anything, and the gunmen flee. Joe Gallo, you know, sort of, I mean, he's a tough guy, right? He's a strong guy, and he sort of goes to go on the chase, and, and he runs out the front of the restaurant, and he staggers to the curb, and he drops to his knees, falls flat on his face, and he dies right there on his 43rd birthday. Now, the Gallo crew would sort of be dispersed to, uh, you know, several different families after that. Albert Gallo, for instance, would be transferred to the Genovese family. Um, other individuals of his were either, you know, killed if they if <clears throat> they wouldn't work for anybody else, or they were sent to work for, you know, other crime borgatas. Now, if there's one thing to learn from Joe Gallo, it's that, I mean, it never pays to be just that fucking insane in organized crime. Like, people, no, nobody wants a crazy guy around. I mean, they're all, I mean, they're all killers. They're all lowlifes. I mean, they're all, you know, guys out there doing what they got to do to get by and make immense money doing it. But nobody wants some schizophrenic, loose-hinged lunatic just running around zinging bullets at everybody, you know? I mean, it's just not good for business. Well, that's all for us here over at Wise Guys Hideaway, everybody. I appreciate you uh, popping in and giving me a listen. I hope you guys are all staying safe. I hope, you know, everybody you love and care about is making it through this uh, crisis. Um, if you know anybody who hasn't, my deepest, you know, sympathies and condolences. I, I hope you're getting along as well as you can. Um, do whatever you can for people, man. If there's old people who need you to go shopping for them, go shopping for them. You know, stay away from young kids and old folks if you don't have to. Don't go out if you don't have to. And just, I mean, it, by all means, just stay safe, stay loved, stay happy. I'm Ian Barr. Thanks for stopping by.